We are continuing our series in Nehemiah. Two men were seen riding a tandem bike. A tandem, for those that are unfamiliar, a tandem is a bicycle made from multiple riders, more than one. And these men were on this tandem um, and had come to a steep hill. This was a category one hill, meaning a grade of probably 12 degrees or more. And those that have biked, and I've climbed some mountains, um, some high mountains on a bike, uh, that's a serious, serious grade. It required a tremendous effort for those men to complete that, what turned out to be a stiff, rigorous, and difficult climb. Once at the top of the hill, though, the rider in the front of that tandem said to the other rider behind him, he said, man, that was an incredibly steep grade. That had to be the most difficult climb I have ever, ever attempted. The other rider said, yes, it was. It was tough. In fact, if I hadn't kept breaking, I think we would have rolled back down the mountain for sure. Um, Nehemiah was in the process of rebuilding Jerusalem, reconstructing that wall around Jerusalem. And it seemed as though some of his own people were putting the brakes on that project. Beginning in chapter 5, Nehemiah faced some serious, serious internal problems. Uh, where there are people in close proximity to one another, there are going to be internal problems because people rubbing up against one another create friction. That's true about organizations from uh, the president's administration um, to Fortune 500 companies to evangelical congregations such as ours. The closer people are together in a relational sense, the greater the chance is for friction and internal conflict. It is an undeniable fact that all churches have problems. A problem-free church is a people-less church. And that's not a church. The church is people. The church consists of people. And people are imperfect. Therefore, people create problems even in the context of the church. At this moment in the United States... Most congregational problems aren't external, although that can change. I predict it will change. As the left, the progressive left, continues to gain societal control, and the left is all about control, it will gain more and more control. It's part of the Great Resets, and we will lose more and more personal freedoms, including the freedom of speech and freedom of religion and other freedoms. Our most serious problem, though, at the moment, is not external. Our most serious problems are internal. Internal, interpersonal conflict is potentially catastrophic because internal problems cause serious division, and then that schism and division distract us from functioning. Nehemiah was experiencing some internal problems among his people. Uh, this is historical narrative, and if you're not into history, uh, maybe this isn't your thing, but if we don't read history, don't learn from history, we will repeat history. Uh, Nehemiah faced four basic problems. One, there was a serious food shortage among the people. A serious food shortage among the people. Notice Nehemiah 5, verse 1. And there was a great outcry of the people 
and their wives against their Jewish brethren. These are Jews having a problem with other Jews. Verse 2, For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, get us grain that we may eat and live. There were more mouths to feed uh, than there was food. Resources and food weren't enough to meet the increasing demand. And then, verse 3 mentions that there was a famine throughout that region that created a serious food shortage. And that famine just compounded the problem. These people were doing exactly what God wanted them to do. These people were laboring to reconstruct that wall and reestablish Jerusalem. These people weren't in sin. These people weren't acting in disobedience. These people were doing exactly what God wanted them to do. But notice, that didn't exempt them from natural disasters such as famines. Obedience to God doesn't mean we are then somehow immune from the problems that all people face. Matthew 5, verse 45, Jesus said that you may be the son, be sons of your Father in heaven. For He, our Father in heaven, makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Just because people were doing the right thing doesn't exempt us from problems that are common to all people. Just because our car spends more time in the shop than in the front of our house and a hailstorm tears off part of our roof doesn't necessarily mean we're doing something wrong. These are problems that are common to all of us regardless of our spiritual status. So there was a serious famine throughout that region. Remember, the people were restoring this wall. And that meant all their time and energy had been spent on that construction project. We mentioned earlier, some of them were working double shifts. So there wasn't enough time left over for them to cultivate their gardens and raise adequate amounts of food. Their personal resources were running out, and the people weren't able to restock their cupboards. Now, there might have been another problem. It's probable that there was some serious theft. The small farms that belonged to the people were considered fair game by their enemies. After the farmers had waited for harvest, rebel bands would descend on those fields just before harvest and strip the fields and vineyards clean of the crops. And that just contributed to the severe food shortage. Second, notice, some people had to mortgage their possessions some people had to mortgage their possessions. The people were forced to mortgage their farmlands and vineyards in order, don't miss this, in order to get money to purchase food. That was a serious problem. Verse 3, there were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. Some of the people had mortgaged their houses and lands in order to acquire loans that were then used to purchase food. Imagine someone being forced to take out another mortgage on their house, not to do home improvement projects, not to pay off unreasonable and delinquent medical expenses. No, take out another mortgage, a second or a third, just to have enough money to buy food. It sounds unbelievable. But that was the case. Number three, some people had to borrow money 
in order to pay taxes to King Artaxerxes. Some people had to borrow money in order to pay taxes. Verse 4, There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. We're fortunate in our house. Uh, as it seems, we most often uh, receive a refund check from the IRS. And uh, we, do, we just never get it right, and so we get a refund. And that's a good thing. But these ancient people weren't expecting a refund. Uh, these people owed the Persian government taxation and didn't have that money in savings. Uh, these people had to borrow money just to pay their taxes. Now remember, these Jewish people that had returned to Jerusalem were from the media Persian Empire, where they were captives there. And these people had been earlier enslaved in Persia and had then been given permission to return to Jerusalem and rebuild this wall. Even though these people were some 800 miles from Persia, they were still citizens of that media Persian empire. And so as citizens, they still owed taxation to Artaxerxes. There are billionaires that have renounced their U.S. citizenship to avoid paying U.S. taxes. I call them Benedict Arnold businessmen. These men have moved their residence and citizenship to another country so they don't have to pay the inflated taxation rate here in the U.S., something I object to. I object to them doing that. But these ancient Jewish people didn't have that option. These people owed serious taxes to the Persian Empire. Part of the problem was these had people had to borrow money from other Jewish people there in, that were better off than them, had more resources than them, in order to pay those taxes. And the problem was then compounded as those Jewish brothers, those creditors, those lenders, were then loaning them money and were charging them exorbitant interest rates. The exact rate of interest isn't mentioned in this text, but some historians believe those interest rates could have exceeded 50%. We mentioned earlier, some of the people were also putting up their lands and vineyards, you know, their fields and vineyards, farmlands, as collateral in order to get loans for their tax monies. These people were in hock up to their ears. It sounds almost like some of us. Listen to this statistic. 80%, 80% of the people in this nation have more financial liability than financial assets. Those people are underwater. The average credit card debt in the U.S. is $6,194. If someone paid just the minimum payment on that amount each month, it would take 32 years to pay it off. And they would have paid an interest payment of more than $23,000 contingent on the interest rate. I just read where the average percentage rate charged from all credit cards, all credit cards and the interest rates from those cards averaged up is, get this, 19.55%. That's craziness. So imagine going into serious credit card debt just to pay off a tax bill. That was the situation in ancient Judah. These people were into serious high interest debt for the payment of those taxes. Problem four, there was a possibility that people could be enslaved again 
it was possible that people could be enslaved again. Notice verse 5. Yet now our flesh <clears throat> is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed, notice this, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been bought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them. The word redeem means to regain possession of something. These people said it's, we don't have the ability to, to, to get them back. Why? For other men have our lands and vineyards. Consider this situation. There's a serious famine. Those Jewish construction laborers that had earlier been enslaved in Persia had been given permission to return to Jerusalem, purchase land for themselves, then build houses and establish vineyards and small farms. It seems that because of these extenuating circumstances we have just mentioned, those people were having to mortgage properties in order to pay off those tax debts. That problem was then further aggravated because there was a serious famine. If those crops failed due to that famine, then what would happen? There wouldn't be crops to sell in order to get the money needed to pay back the money that had been borrowed in order to pay taxes to Artaxerxes. What would those people do if that happened? Their creditors would come and repossess their vineyards and farms and land and houses. And if that repossession wasn't enough to pay off the debts they owed, then those creditors would take the children of those people that owed them money put them on a trading block, sell them as slaves, and then use the monies from the sale of those children as slaves so the parents could pay off debt. That is totally repulsive to us, selling our children in order to have enough resources to pay off our debts. But do we understand that still happens in modern times? We call that human trafficking. On a global scale, at this moment, there are more than 40 million, 40 million victims being trafficked. And 25% of them, meaning 10 million of them, are children. Some, probably the larger percentage, are trafficked to do hard manual labor. But if a child is trafficked for the sex trade, then the average age is between 12 and 14 and some have been rescued as young as age 3 imagine that a child that is trafficked for sexual purposes is abused 20 to 30 times per day more than half the criminal human trafficking cases in the US are sex trafficked children the largest criminal enterprise on earth is drug trafficking and the second largest criminal enterprise is human trafficking generating an annual 150 billion dollars in illegal profits and 99 billion of that is from sexual exploitation second timothy 3 verse 13 in the last days in the end times notice evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse deceiving and being deceived. That describes human traffickers and human trafficking. In Nehemiah's time, those parents wouldn't be able to buy their enslaved children back because of their own financial destitution. 
Some of them had lost their homes, their farmlands, their vineyards, so they had no means to earn enough income to be able to repurchase their children as slaves. It's hard to imagine, but that's what had started to happen. So Nehemiah faced these four serious, serious problems. Notice Nehemiah's initial reaction and response to those internal problems. His response is mentioned in verse 6. Nehemiah said, And I became very angry. Not annoyed, not mildly upset, not angry. He became very, very angry. And when I heard their outcry... And these words, Nehemiah was angered at all that injustice and exploitation of the poor. He was extremely agitated, and I believe his anger was justifiable. Nehemiah's anger was aimed at those people that were acting in absolute selfishness and taking advantage of the more unfortunate and capitalizing on the misfortunes of those that were poor. Some people now are still insensitive to the un the more unfortunate. Nehemiah manifested a justifiable anger, a righteous indignation. People, there is a time to be angry, and this was one of those times. Not all anger is wrong. There is an acceptable form of anger. We mentioned this in our series on love from 1 Corinthians 13. I have an entire message on that. Let me define righteous anger. Righteous anger is an emotional reaction because God is being defamed either in his person or in what he has said, meaning in what he has said in Scripture. Notice, righteous anger, righteous indignation, is not being angry in defense of ourselves. It is being angry in defense of God. That means if we're angry and upset because someone snubbed us or someone gave us what we thought was a bum deal, or someone said something about us that offended us. If those are our reasons for being angered, people, then that's not a righteous emotion. Remember, the root cause of all internal conflict is selfishness. Selfishness. The exact identification of the opposing parties in a conflict doesn't matter. It could be siblings fighting among themselves. It could be a pastor and elder's stalemate. It could be a labor and management lock, locked, in a, locked out in a contract dispute. It could be divorcing parents suing for custody of their children. It doesn't matter. The identification of the opposing parties in a conflict isn't the issue because the con- cause of internal conflict is always the same. It is selfishness. People tend to be selfish, including me. We want what we want. And sometimes what we want isn't best for others. And so then there's conflict. Nehemiah's reaction was legitimate. He wasn't after personal revenge because someone bruised his ego. This wasn't a personal vendetta. That's not what this was about. Nehemiah was upset at the people's selfishness. And sin should be upsetting to us. Question, how did Nehemiah handle these internal problems? How did he address these matters? Nehemiah understood this entire project could just blow up in his face and then the wall would never be rebuilt and Jerusalem would never be able to reestablish itself. These internal problems were actually more serious 
than the external opposition from his enemies, Sambalad and Tobiah. That sounds strange on the surface. I mean, Sambalad and Tobiah and these anti-Semitic groups that were, had planned a, a, a secret uh, attack and invasion, uh, that was a problem, a, a serious external problem. But these internal problems are more serious than that. And here's why. Problems from outside us, problems from an external perspective, tend to bring us together and unify us against that opposition. The Ukrainian people are unified and together and are fighting because the opposition from that madman Putin have brought them together against that opposition. That's what happened, some of us remember, that's what happened at Grace Life Church in Edmonton, Canada. Remember, we prayed for that congregation uh, during COVID and the lockdown. Pastor James Coates and his congregation continued to worship uh, and conduct full worship services uh, throughout that time in defiance of local public health orders that limited attendance to just 15% of a room's capacity. Um, that congregation said, no, we're going to continue to worship. Because of that defiance, Pastor Coates was then imprisoned for more than a month. In addition to that, after being released from prison, uh, the authorities then erected a, a, a chain leak fence around the complete perimeter of that, of that building. The church then was locked out for a number of months. Now the church is back together. The church, though, during that time, met in secret. The church continued to meet. But it's interesting. That persecution from the outside brought those people together, unified them, and guess what? Grace Life Church was averaging just over 300 when the lockdown came. This morning, they're averaging over 900 after 24 months because it pulled the people together and unified them against the opposition. But internal problems, problems on the inside of these walls, divide us from one another and render us ineffective. This was serious because if Nehemiah's people weren't unified and together in completing this project, then construction would stop. There were three steps to Nehemiah's solution. Three steps. Number one, the first thing Nehemiah did to relieve, resolve those internal problems, Nehemiah consulted himself. Nehemiah consulted himself. In verse 6, we just read, Nehemiah mentioned he was very angry when he heard about these problems and his people being taken advantage of. He was upset at the abuse his people were suffering because those richer Jewish nobles were extracting interest and enormous interest rates on the loans given to his people and then if that wasn't enough, confiscating all their possessions and sometimes actually taking their children and selling them as slaves. And Nehemiah was angered at that sinful exploitation and he was upset because his people were being divided against one another. And that division jeopardized that entire project. If our oneness is being threatened, if our unification as a congregation is 
being threatened, then we should also be angry as Nehemiah was because God is being defamed in what he has specifically said in Scripture. God said he hates that which undermines the unity of his people. For instance, one example, Proverbs 6, starting at verse 16, going through verse 19. Verse 6 starts reading, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination unto him. An abomination is something God abhors. He hates. He finds it detestable. And then the seventh thing, he itemizes six things he hates, and the seven, which he labels as an abomination, the seventh thing God finds abominable and detestable is mentioned in verse 19, and notice is the one who sows discord, meaning the person who stirs the pot, meaning the person who contributes to dissension and conflict among the brethren. God said that is an abomination. Louis Cosell said this, we were exposed because of the media, we're exposed daily to so much human tragedy that we've experienced what some have called compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue. Having felt sorry for so many victims from floods and earthquakes and war, we simply cannot muster the sympathy we know we should have for fresh casualties. A recent example of that was from The Views, Joy Behar. She was commenting on the crisis in Ukraine, and I hope no one here watches that program. If you do, you need to repent. That's just garbage. It's like you've got a sewer pipe running into your house, and it's exposed. So, co-host... Sonny Huston was commenting on Ukraine's humanitarian crisis and said that this Russian invasion could start a serious refugee crisis in Europe. It has more than 1.2 million and counting refugees. People have escaped Ukraine. It's going to create mass problems. And she said the potential human casualties, fatalities, could number 50,000 or more. And Joy Behar's response was, and Joy, if you don't know, is, a, is an atheist. Uh, she is decidedly anti-Christian. Uh, she is opposed to us. And Joy's response was, quote, Well, I'm scared of what's going to happen in Western Europe, too. You know, you plan a trip. You want to go there. I wanted to go to Italy for four years. I haven't been able to make it because of the pandemic. And now there's this. It's like, what's going on there too? It amazes me how the rich elite on the left just ooze compassion. Miss Behart is more concerned about her vacation plans than she is about the massive destruction from war and human death. That's compassion fatigue. It's interesting, ironic probably, that just after that comment on another show, I understand she fell off her chair and face-planted on the floor. It was embarrassing, I'm sure, and I, I heard about that, and I felt bad about that for a nanosecond, and then I got over it. 
But worse than compassion fatigue, worse than that is anger fatigue, indignation fatigue. Meaning we have lost the capacity to be angered about wrongdoing. We have lost the capacity to be angered at sin. We have become indifferent to wrongdoing as if someone has administered a massive dose of Novocaine to our conscience. We ought not to be numb about sin. And just as Nehemiah was, we should be upset at anything, anything that could cause internal problems and potentially divide us as a congregation. Remember the principle, we've all heard it, united we stand, divided we will fall. Verse 7. Verse 7 begins, After serious thought stop there notice that even at those times where someone does have a legitimate reason to be upset because God is being defamed either in his person he's being blasphemed or in something he has said in his in scripture this person that has a right to be upset should still consult himself before he acts I have a long history of not doing that. I have acted impulsively and done horrific things that I ultimately regretted. Even though Nehemiah was angry and had a right to be angry and upset, he didn't take immediate action. He didn't go off half-cocked. He didn't react on pure emotion. He wasn't impulsive. For those of us in this room that are type A personalities, and there's a couple of us, I recognize them. Um, notice that instead, what he did was first consult himself. The Hebrew phrase used here, translated as serious thought, meant to give oneself advice, uh, to counsel oneself. So Nehemiah began to talk to himself. He said, okay, self, let's sit down. Let's get a grip on this situation. Let's slow down and think through this and let's see what we can do to resolve these problems. In consulting himself first, before he acted, Nehemiah demonstrated tremendous self-control. That is a significant point, because if someone is very angry, then more often than not, that person's most immediate response is wrong. And I speak from personal experience. That's the reason Thomas Jefferson said... When angry, count to ten before you speak. And if very angry, then count to one hundred. Nehemiah first consulted himself. He sat himself down, got control of his emotions, and then thought through what to do before he reacted to these problems. Because impulsiveness, most often, is a bad thing. Second thing Nehemiah did to resolve these internal problems was Nehemiah confronted their sin. He confronted the sin that those people had been committing. Verse 7 continues. After serious thought, Nehemiah said, I rebuked the nobles and rulers. Rebuke means a sharp disapproval or criticism of someone's behavior and actions. Um, in our vernacular, we'd say, he, you ripped their face. He just tore into them. I rebuked the nobles and rulers. Why? Because the nobles and rulers were causing these problems, extorting these people, charging them 
excessive interest rates on loans. And if they weren't able to make payments on those loans, they were repossessing their farmlands and vineyards. And if that wasn't enough, then they would you know, capture their children and sell them as slaves to pay off the debt. And so he said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. So Nehemiah got all the people together that were a part of the problem, confronted those that were responsible for that problem primarily. He addressed the actual people that had created all that trouble. Notice he didn't tiptoe around this situation. Instead, he confronted the nobles and rulers and confronted anyone else that had participated in all that excess and abuse. He accused them of, notice, exacting usury from their brethren. That phrase, exacting usury, meant charging someone interest. Although most often that phrase meant charging someone an exorbitant and excessive interest rate. The problem was these Jewish nobles have been charging those construction laborers, these are blue-collar people, charging them interest at exorbitant, outrageous rates. That practice violated Hebrew Scripture. The ancient Jews had been commanded from God, specific instruction from God, not to charge one another interest. No interest, period. God wanted the Jewish nation to be different from other nations. He wanted to bless them to the extent it would be unnecessary for them to charge interest to one another. Remember, these people at Jerusalem, these Jewish people had possessed the Mosaic Law. So these people were aware of what God instructed his people to do and not do about loaning one another money. Notice Exodus 22, verse 25. This is part of the Mosaic Law, the Pentateuch. If you lend money to any of my people, my people, the Jewish people, if you lend money to a Jewish person who are poor among you, you, not, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not charge him interest. It was permissible for a Jewish person to loan another Jewish person money, but that lender was not permitted to charge him interest because he was a Jewish brother. Deuteronomy 23, verses 19 and 20. You shall not charge interest to your brother interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. Verse 20, to a foreigner, meaning to a non-Jewish Gentile person, to a foreigner, you may charge interest. Hey, you can, you can charge these foreigners. That's fine. That's a fair business practice. You can do that. But, notice, but to your brother, to your Jewish brother or sister, you shall not charge interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. Some Christians still practice this voluntarily. If one of them loans money to another Christian, brother or sister, then that's considered an interest-free loan. I've done that a number of times, although most often I will gift someone money, not loan them money, in some cases I have, and in those cases where I have loaned someone money, I do not expect them to return it. Now the agreement is they're going to return it, no interest, but return it, but I don't expect them to. That way I'm not disappointed if they don't. I loaned a man $200 once, which was 
not much money, but I did. He was in a jam. He said, Can I, I'll, I'll get it back to you. I'll get it back to you. I loaned it to him. Never heard. He never mentioned it again. I never mentioned it to him because I didn't expect him. Ten years later, he said, man, here's what I owed you. Wow. I said, man, you didn't have to do that. Really, I'd forgotten all about it, but he, but he did. And it's better late than never. That's okay. The ancient stipulation mentioned here is that a member of the Jewish race under the Old Testament Mosaic Law was not permitted to charge another Jewish person interest on a loan. But these people violated that principle and charged their Jewish brothers and sisters interest and to compound that problem, to make matters worse, they charged them inflated, excessive interest rates. And then something more serious was that no Jew was permitted to enslave another Jewish person. Moses mentioned that in Leviticus 25, verse 35, verse 36, verses 39 through 41, where the Jewish people were specifically, strictly prohibited from owning one another as slaves. If someone owed a creditor a debt he wasn't able to manage, he could voluntarily sell himself to that lender as an indentured servant and pay off that loan through working for that person, but he wasn't considered a slave. But that's not what happened in Nehemiah's case. Nehemiah commented on how illogical those Jewish creditors had been. Verse 8, And I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed, we have gotten back, we have regained possession of our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. And now, indeed, Will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? Nehemiah said, listen to me. He said, our Jewish brothers and sisters are here from Persia. These are the ones you are exploiting and taking advantage of. These people are here in this land for one reason, and that is to rebuild this protective wall and reestablish a secure existence in Jerusalem so that all of us can reoccupy this place. It seems as though some of you that are already here, you were here before we arrived, want to enslave them again through repossessing all their possessions and then selling their children to slaves. So these people were first slaves in Persia, and now here you want to make them slaves a second time in Jerusalem. You want to that's just nonsensical he said that's illogical unacceptable these people came here to be free not to be enslaved Nehemiah's question was and what you what are you people doing what are you people thinking and then notice the end of verse 8 then they were silenced and found nothing to say that is the response of the people to Nehemiah's argumentation in our vernacular we would call that a mic drop moment if that's an unfamiliar phrase it's most often used as a in a figurative sense although it has been used in a literal sense a mic drop is an instance of someone deliberately dropping a mic at the end of a performance or speech that is considered to be extremely impressive now we don't drop mics here they're expensive we just don't do that okay figuratively maybe but not literally but but there was silence what could these rich unethical immoral creditors say there was no intelligent acceptable response so Nehemiah confronted their selfishness these nobles had violated biblical principles through extracting interest and excessive interest from these Jewish immigrants and then enslaving their children this was disgusting verse 9 then I said And how often do you hear this in a pulpit? Then I said, 
What you are doing is not good. What you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? Nehemiah said to those rulers and nobles, those that had resources and means and finances that had, you know, loaned money to these people who had almost nothing. And then when they couldn't pay back those loans uh, that were at excessive interest rates, repossessed their lands and vineyards, and then if that wasn't enough, again sold their children as slaves. Nehemiah said, if we don't stop this foolishness, then our reputation as God's covenant children is going to be ruined. We will be perceived among the nations as scum. Because what intelligent, sophisticated society would exploit and abuse one another like you people have been doing? Nehemiah wasn't afraid to confront those people that were responsible for this problem. Listen carefully. Confrontation is the one thing almost everyone hates to do. I hate to confront someone. I just hate it. It keeps me up at night. It bothers me. I do everything I can to avoid it. I do not derive even a second of satisfaction from confrontation. And pointing out someone's faults is something that no one should enjoy doing. I might add, I have been confronted more than I have ever confronted. The ratio is probably 10 to 1. I almost never confront. I have to be pushed and pushed into a corner. There are times, though, that we cannot ignore someone's behavior. And we must do as Nehemiah did and confront that person and or persons. For those of you that are unfamiliar, if we are aware of someone's wrongdoing, someone's sin and or offense directed toward ourselves or toward someone else, then we have just two options. Two options are available to us from a biblical perspective. Two and only two options. Option one, we can let love cover that offense. First Peter 4 and verse 8. Love can cover a multitude of sins. We can let love cover that. To let love cover something means we commit that person and that offense to God and then we forget about it and never bring it up. Don't think about it. Don't talk about it. We just bury it. That's letting love cover it. But if that sin and transgression and offense is such that we cannot ignore it and cannot, it it bothers us and bugs us constantly, then we have to confront that person and that offense and sin. That's Matthew 18 and verse 15. Out of love for that person, and we should be motivated from love, out of love and concern for that person, we are then obligated biblically to confront them. The only question that remains is, and just how are we to confront someone? Let me just, I injected this, this is a practical application, a checklist for confrontation. So answer these questions if you are about to confront someone. One, do I confront myself first? Do I confront myself first? Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5. Jesus said, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Verse 4. Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Verse 5. Hypocrite. 
Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is the situation. Someone we know has a sin problem, and we just can't let love cover it. It is just a nuisance and a bothersome, and it's burdened us, and, and we've tried it, and we can't, and so we know there has to be a confrontation. It's a smaller problem, though, uh, analogous to a speck. And a speck is comparable to a, a small splinter, but something that can't be ignored. It seems, though, that we have a larger sin problem ourselves. Our problem is analogous to a plank, and a plank is comparable to a two-by-four. I might add two-by-fours are selling at record prices, if you're interested. Jesus said it would be hypocritical for us to confront this person about his smaller sin problem if we're ignoring the larger sin problem we have ourselves. That's probably the reason... I've been reluctant to confront because I have my own backyard to clean up. The principle is before confronting someone else, we should first confront ourselves. Confrontation requires us to confront ourselves before we are eligible to confront and correct someone else. Self-confrontation, people, happens first. Second, do I confront them as soon as possible? as soon as possible. If it is the right thing to confront someone, then we should do that as soon as it is appropriate, as soon as it is reasonable to do so. Here's the problem. Some people store up negative feelings for months about what someone has done, and then out of frustration at a subsequent time, all at once just unload and dump all those feelings onto this person. And that happens, if that happens, then that becomes an overload for that confronted person, and most people can't handle that. So, if, it, if we need to confront, we should do it as soon as it is reasonable and appropriate to do so. Third, do I give them the benefit of the doubt? People, this doesn't happen often enough. Remember, someone is innocent until proven guilty. There could be details we don't know about. There could be information we aren't privy to, that if we had that information, it could affect that confrontation. I was once prepared to confront someone, and then I learned I had been misinformed. I, I, didn't, have, I didn't have the information I should have had. So I called off that confrontation. I didn't. I backed off. In giving someone the benefit of the doubt, we should ask questions before bringing an accusation against someone. Fourth, do I separate the person from the wrong action? Do I separate the person from the wrong action? The procedure is to address the problem, not attack the person. Address the problem, don't attack the person. Number five, do I confront only what the person can change? It isn't fair to expect someone to do something he is unable to do. I, uh, this happened to me some time ago. <clears throat> I had, those of you know, I had back surgery, lower back surgery three years ago. Probably for two years prior to that, it was very difficult for me to stand for any length or period of time. I would stand and have to hold on to the pulpit to relieve the pressure in my lower back. I had lower lumbar stenosis. And uh, my feet would become numb I mean numb, and I would fall to the ground unless I could hold on to something. I couldn't walk more than a, a hundred feet. It was excruciating, and I was procrastinating. I didn't want back surgery, and I was procrastinating. <clears throat> and I would sit often, 
when everyone stood to sing, I sat and sang because I wanted to save myself for the pulpit because I knew I couldn't stand there long unassisted by holding on to an object. But someone in our church, a good person, was upset about that. And he told people that I wasn't a good example and I was sitting and not standing. And, uh, well, I understood. But he never asked questions. He never inquired as to why I had to do that and what was happening. And uh, I couldn't change that until I had surgery. I couldn't change that. If we expect to do something someone to do something he's unable to do if that happens then frustration results and the relationship will be damaged and so only confront what we know a person can change number six do I avoid using inflammatory language we've all done this don't use all exclusive phrases such as you never have you ever said this to your mate I know you people haven't because you're perfect but have you ever said you never you always that's inflammatory exaggerated language and that can give someone the impression that he can't do anything right and that gives them a sense of hopelessness and that is not the intent of confrontation number seven do I affirm them as a person and friend some people interpret any confrontation as a rejection of themselves I have learned not to do that I accept confrontation that's unfortunate if we feel about confrontation like that. It's important that we affirm someone. If we are forced to confront them, we affirm them as a friend. We care. We're doing... I have a book in my office called Caring Enough to Confront. And it should be motivated totally from care. These are questions we should ask ourselves before confronting someone. Third thing Nehemiah did to resolve... I must hurry. Third thing Nehemiah did to resolve internal problems. Nehemiah commanded them to correct the situation. He commanded them, fix this, do the right thing. He commanded them to correct the situation. Verse 10, I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. Nehemiah said that he would make interest-free loans to those poor people that needed them. And then notice what he said to this group of nobles and rulers and those who were abusive to the people. Please let us stop this usury. He said, let us stop doing this. Let's stop ripping our people off. Nehemiah insisted no one charge interest to another jury's person that needed a loan. And then he made another demand. Now notice verse 11. He said, restore now to them, meaning the people you've abused and taken advantage of, restore now to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. Wow. Nehemiah commanded that these selfish and manipulating creditors give back all the possessions that they had taken from the people and even give back some of the interest money. Notice that Nehemiah said also, Restore now to them even this day. Nehemiah said, Do it. Do it. Do it now. Some of us, including me, are into spiritual procrastination putting off until another time what God wants us to do now. We kick the can down the road. I've done it so often. Procrastination is not part of God's vocabulary. So these these are the three steps. 
Nehemiah first sat down and consulted himself so that he wouldn't just react to this injustice from pure emotion. Second, he then confronted the people responsible for that sinful problem. And then third, he commanded them to correct that situation at once. Now, this is exciting. Notice how the people reacted to Nehemiah's instructions. Notice, verse 12. So they, meaning these people he just confronted, said to Nehemiah, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. Notice, we will do as you say. I want those guys here. <laughs> they were complete compliance. Complete submission to his demand. Those rich lenders said, all right, Nehemiah, you're right. We'll return the properties and lands to the people, and we aren't going to ask for any more interest money either. And if they're children that have been taken, we'll return those. These creditors agreed to do what Nehemiah wanted them to do. But since talk can be cheap, Nehemiah added another strategic stipulation. Nehemiah put them on the spot. Most people miss this. Notice the second half of verse 12. Even though they had agreed verbally, probably enthusiastically, to do what he asked them to do. Notice the stipulation Nehemiah made. Then I called the priest. The priest represented the religious authorities of the people and required an oath from them. Not an oath from the priest, not a promise from the priest. He required an oath from the creditors, those abusive and selfish men who had taken advantage of the people, he required an oath or a commitment and promise from them in front of the priest that they would do according to this promise. So in order to help ensure that those rich nobles were sincere in agreeing to do what Nehemiah had just told them to do, Nehemiah had them reaffirm this promise and commitment in front of the priest. He forced these men to make a public oath. He made those nobles promise to do that in front of their spiritual authorities so that those priests could then hold them accountable for what they had committed themselves to do. Why did Nehemiah require them to make a public commitment? Because a commitment announced in public in front of others can actually help someone better fulfill that commitment. It gives someone additional incentive to keep that promise he's made. That's one reason why Jesus requires us to be baptized. Baptism is a public announcement. A public announcement that we have believed and received Jesus and that we intend to follow him. And that gives the one that is baptized additional incentive to maintain his commitment to Jesus Christ. And if you haven't been baptized, then you should be the next time we baptize. So Nehemiah said, had these people promise him, yes, we will give back all the lands and vineyards and barns and houses and children that have been enslaved and the interest money, and we will never do this again. And he made them promise that in public in front of the priests, because being accountable to others is a good thing. Verse 13. Then I, Nehemiah, <clears throat> shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. Meaning, so be it. Right on. Yes, we agree. 
and praise the Lord. He added one more thing. In order to ensure that these nobles understood just how serious this promise and commitment was that they had made publicly in front of the priests, Nehemiah then demonstrated to the people what would happen to them if they were to break this promise. Nehemiah took off his coat like this, and he shook it. He shook it in front of the people, just like that. And he said, this is what God will do to you if you break this commitment. He will shake you down, and you will lose everything. And then notice the phrase at the end of verse 13. Then the people did according to this promise. Those people actually kept that promise and commitment that they had made to Nehemiah. It is so unfortunate, but that now doesn't happen as often as it should happen. People don't often do what they say they are going to do. And people, that is a serious character flaw. If you commit to something, you do what you say you're going to do. I try my best to live by that because if I make a commitment, I keep it. And if for some reason, circumstances have prevented me from keeping that commitment, I notify the person I made the commitment to and tell them of what has happened and tell them and apologize for that because I want to do what I say I'm going to do. These people did what they said they would do. These people <coughs> corrected their wrongdoings. These people made a commitment to God and to Nehemiah, united together and completed that wall in 52 days. Internal problems are inevitable, but those problems do not have to cause division and undermine our united effort if we are faithful to do what Nehemiah did, meaning to consult ourselves, to confront the problem, and then to encourage the participating parties to correct the situation. Someone said, snowflakes are extremely fragile in and of themselves, but if enough of them stick together, they can stop traffic. I'm suggesting we be like snowflakes, and stick together and let's stop some traffic. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, you've heard what we've said. I hope it's helpful. I just pray you'll use this to <clears throat> cause us to think and reevaluate things and do everything we can to maintain unity and a oneness in this congregation because we will never, ever be effective if we aren't. I thank you for your word and what it means to each of us. And I thank you and praise you in the name of your special son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.